So you guys, just as we always do, as anyone's been here for any amount of time, when we introduce a book, I always love to just kind of do, you know, as much as we can trying to get through and see what this book is about before we get started. So we have like a good kind of base, a good decking to kind of begin the process of going through the book. And so here we are in Isaiah. It's a very rich book, right? It's known by, in some circles, it's called the fifth gospel, right? And that, that means something because this is the Old Testament book that speaks more directly and dis, just distinctly about the Messiah. Man, it gives us all this information about the Messiah, where he was going to be born, how he was going to die. And this all happened, you guys, over 700 years before Jesus was on the scene, over 500 years before crucifixion, which Isaiah describes in detail, existed as a tortured way, a way to torture and kill. There is so much that God used Isaiah to write down that is so absolutely supernaturally prophetic that it is important to remember that as we come to this book. There's a lot here. And you guys, I don't know about you, but this book, as I've read through this book you know, numerous times throughout my life, man, it's a faith-building book. The whole Bible is faith-building, but there's certain parts of certain books that you're just like, man, how the heck did this guy Isaiah without the help of the Holy Spirit, write any of this. He didn't, is the answer, right? And it just helps me to see, man, God is so good. So I'm praying that we're going to grow as a church and be blessed by this book as we read through it. There's two major themes that run through the book of Isaiah, and this is important, so I want you guys to keep this in mind because we're going to keep talking about why these themes matter and how there's some arguments about things that we're going to talk about. But the reality is, is that this book is 66 chapters. And if you didn't know, there's another thing that this book is called. It's called a little mini Bible because this is 66 chapters. Do you guys know how many books are in the Bible? 66, right? So there's this thing that happens in Isaiah. There's just so many kind of cool things. But the first 39 chapters, that first part of the book is kind of divided in judgment. It's God's judgment. It's talking a lot about judgment. And then chapter 40 through 66 is salvation and redemption. And so we're, and that's where that chapter 40 on is kind of where we start to really read a lot about the Messiah and things. So we're not going to get to that probably till next year, but we'll find out. <laughs> but the reality is, you guys, is that that's kind of the divisions of Isaiah. There's some other, if you go online, you can see there's some people that are like, well, it's actually three or two, whatever. We're going with two, two divisions. Isaiah wrote his prophetic words mainly to warn Judah of the coming judgments, but we're going to see him very, very beginning in first one. Unlike a lot of the prophets of this day, remember the divided kingdom was happening when Isaiah was alive. They were two different kingdoms. This was after David and Solomon had died. And what happened after Solomon died? They divided, right? 10 of the tribes went north and created Israel and the two tribes stayed south and that became Judah, which is where Jerusalem was, right? You guys know that in history. If you don't, go read Kings. You'll learn. Um, but the reality is, is that Isaiah kind of, they believe possibly, we don't really know where Isaiah resided, but they believe that he was in like northern Judah. But the way he writes, it isn't just to Judah. And he actually says this. So he writes to everybody. He wants to write to the people of Israel, not just to one specific set, but he's, he's more geared towards Judah itself, those two tribes. You guys, we're going to read about Assyria coming and causing harm. And if it, it's not, I don't think by mistake that God had us go through Jonah and Nahum. And by the way, I didn't know we were going to Isaiah when we started Jonah. So I did, this wasn't planned. This is just the Lord as he worked it out. But the reality is, you guys, is that at this point in history, Assyria had kind of already come and taken away the Northern Kingdom. 
those 10 tribes, but they had also, if you guys know your history as far as kings and chronicles and stuff, we know that Sennacherib came down and we read some of that in Nahum, right? Where we went back and read where he came down and he was like, put, it, put the southern kingdoms, put Jerusalem in, under siege and was there and he was talking real loud and Hezekiah did his thing. You guys remember he took it before the Lord in the temple and then God rescued him. How? Supernaturally, right? Like all these people died. All these soldiers from Assyria just randomly kind of turned on each other. The angel of the Lord killed them. And then we know that the king went back and what happened? He died, right? His sons were like, you suck. Boom, killed him. That's what they said. That's in that language exactly. <laughs> Sorry. So we also see Isaiah speaking plainly, you guys, and we're going to read about this. He talks pretty plainly about the coming exile to Babylon. Again, before this was even a thing, he writes about this. He even talks about the return of exile that he wasn't alive for. There's a lot of cool stuff that we're going to see here. We also, like I said, we get the clearest picture of the Messiah in all of the Old Testament prophets. He gives us the clearest picture. He tells us that, it's going to, that the, the Messiah will rise from the line of David, from the seed of David. We see very specifically how uh, Jesus, how the Messiah was going to act and what, how it was going to happen, where he was going to be born, how he's going to die, and all this stuff. And we see it all fulfilled in Jesus. And the reality is because of the sheer impossibility of any human knowing even a portion of the amount of things that Isaiah writes, there is this thing in modern critical scholarship, critical biblical scholarship it's called, high, uh, high criticism it's called. Why is it high? Well, because they think very highly of themselves and they're a bunch of idiots in my opinion. But one person named Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. They, in critical scholarship, said, well, that's not possible. That can't be possible. How could one human being know something that's not going to happen for another 700 years? Do you get this? I need you to hear this. It wasn't until after the 18th century. When I say modern scholarship, modern critical scholarship, it happened around that time it began kind of the enlightenment period, whenever we came out of the dark ages and all this other stuff. And they're like, well, we are now smarter than God, so let's prove all of the things in the Bible that couldn't be true because there's no way that they could ever be that way. And so they kind of started criticizing this whole thing. And so it wasn't until after the 18th century that anyone had any question about the authorship of Isaiah. Mainly, why was there any question to begin with? Because they didn't want to ascribe a supernatural element to the holy writings. Again, remember, we had just come out of the dark ages and we thought very highly of ourselves because we're so smart now. When in fact, it doesn't take much looking around in Rome at the Colosseum or the pyramids in Egypt to realize that we're not smart, we're stupid. We've lost so much knowledge in the dark ages and we now think we're smart because we have Google. We're not smart, we're, we're more stupid. We just have knowledge at our fingertips. Do you get it? I'm just trying to point out that that's humanity in general. It's after the 18th century that we hear terms that maybe some of you guys have heard of, of Deutero-Isaiah. Anyone ever heard that term? There's even some scholars that are so smart, they're like, it wasn't even, couldn't even been two people, it was probably three, so it's Trito-Isaiah. There's three different people that wrote in the pen name of Isaiah. Deutero-Isaiah, you guys, it's the same beginning of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. Deutero-Isaiah is the second guy who wrote like Isaiah to make sure that he could write the second half after it happened. That's what they think. However, 
We have found so many proofs that Isaiah was written by one human being. So many, you guys. We have an entire scroll of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's from the second century. The Essenes, when they, when they wrote those and hid them in those caves in the second century, when they wrote that in their mind, and, and just by the way, I mean, let's just be honest. I think that if we had a Civil War vet here today and they were still alive, who do you think would be the, the knowledgeable person on the Civil War? A historian that went to college? Or the vet? <laughs> I'm going to go with the vet. The closer we get to something, the more I'm probably going to put a little bit of faith, especially in the, their recollection of things. And so here we see in the second century, these guys are like, this one guy wrote this book. That's what it is. And they, they had it. We have an entire scroll of it. They believed it was one book. Furthermore, you guys, we have the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Guess what? That's all one book. That's not divided into. They knew that it was one author that wrote that entire book. Most importantly, you guys, and this is the one that to me holds the most weight, Isaiah is quoted extensively throughout the New Testament, both sections. Both sections. Because most scholars say in higher criticism, they're like, well, that second half that was way nicer than the first half was probably not written by the prophet. That was the part that was written by the the new guy after Jesus. Do you understand how ridiculous it is? It's not possible that you would have an entire scroll of Isaiah in the second century if someone else waited until after Hezekiah, until after all this stuff, and then started writing these things. It's not possible. God did something supernatural through one man. Period. End of sentence. You guys, do you know this? Not only is this something interesting, but flip over with me to the book of John or the Gospel of John, I should say, chapter 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. So I just taught at a church in Vegas, and guess what they don't do? They don't put any of the scriptures up. Do you know why? Because they're like, everybody should have a Bible in their hand. I think I might start doing that. (laughs) So John, chapter 12, verse 37, says this. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled. Lord, who has believed that he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's from Isaiah 53.1, the second section. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. That's from Isaiah 6.10, the first section. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What's John saying in not long after the death of Jesus, right? Like we're, we're within decades, a couple decades away, you know, three, four, five dec- decades after the, the time of Jesus being on the earth, you guys. The reality is, is that John's making it clear that in his estimation, Isaiah was written by one person. And these both of these scriptures from very drastic different points within this big book of prophecy both applied in this moment of history about when Jesus was going to be on the scene, the Messiah. One final interesting piece of information. This is just a little tidbit of info, um, I guess, because I like this stuff. It's intriguing to me. Isaiah is mentioned by name more than all the other prophets combined in the New Testament. He is mentioned 22 times. His name is mentioned 22 times in the New Testament. 
It's almost like God knew that this most precious of Old Testament prophetic books would be the one that's under the biggest amount of fire. And so he gave us the biggest amount of proofs to prove that this one guy wrote all this. (laughs) Does that make sense? It's just kind of crazy. He gave us a lot of clues, you guys. So, verse 1. Let's start. Isaiah. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we read here that Isaiah was a prophet through at least four kings of Judah. That's pretty awesome. It's an interesting point, though, that I want to make. And this is another one of those things that I just like because... It's a little gory, but here's the deal. There's a lot of church tradition that strongly suggests that he, that Isaiah lived to be a very, very old man past, a little bit past the age of Hezekiah. Who was Hezekiah's son? Do you guys remember? Manasseh. Manasseh was a horrific king. He was horrible. Church tradition strongly suggests that he was sawn in half from the bottom to the top by Manasseh. This is what a lot of scholars believe is referenced in Hebrews 11.37 when it says about that there's some, some of the prophets were sawn in half. They believe that that was Manasseh sawing Isaiah in half. That's nowhere specifically in Scripture. We can't necessarily prove that out, but a lot of church tradition really holds pretty strongly that that is what happened. And so there's that interesting piece. So with that piece of information, let's move on. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens... And give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah, first off, and we're going to read this all throughout, was not a cowardly man. Isaiah was kind of a one of those, like, I'm going to tell you like it is kind of guys. I'd say most of the prophets were that way, right? That was kind of one of those things of being a prophet is like, I might die for this. Let me do it anyway, right? So that Isaiah was not cowardly. He spoke the truth that God gave him without concern of how it was going to be received. And as a matter of fact, you guys, we're going to read in just a little bit that God told him that. He had a vision of God. We're going to read this in a few chapters. That, and remember, he touched the coal to his lips to, to purify because he's like, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't, I can't do this thing, God. And God touches his lips. That had to hurt. But he purifies him and he says, you're going to go to a people and I want you to keep telling them, but they ain't going to listen. So Isaiah knew his role. Isaiah knew his job. And here he is. He's delivering it. He's speaking the truth that God told him. And he did it regardless of what they had to say about it. And here's the thing. Here's what he starts off with, this sad indictment against Judah. He starts off with this really sad indictment. They had rebelled against God. When you read Jeremiah, we went through the book of Ezekiel. We've done all these things. This is before this time. He's already telling them like, you guys, you are not listening. And that's what they said the whole time, right? And we read in Ezekiel that Ezekiel, they, they actually thought very highly of themselves, even in the midst of Babylon coming and being destructive to them and setting them under siege and doing all this. They're like, we're the choice meat. We're the ones that are, are better than everybody else. And it's like, you idiots. You don't see that you are literally doing the opposite of what God has asked you to do. And I need us to hear this. Here's Isaiah saying it before all of those other guys said it. 
Does that make sense? You guys following me? What is Isaiah saying? What is God saying through Isaiah? God is telling him, man, you're too stupid. You're stupid. That's what he's telling him. He says the ox knows its owner. The donkey knows who gives it its food and shelter. You're too dumb to know anything. That's what he's telling them. Israel's too dumb to know. They simply don't seem to understand. That's what he's telling Guys, have a great night. <laughs> Rough start. Verse 4. Let's keep reading. It says this. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God uses Isaiah to call them what they are, a sinful nation. But I need you to hear this. That little word up front, ah, the translation of that is basically God's way of describing, I'm not mad at you, I'm, I'm sad. This breaks my heart that you guys are doing this stuff. You are a sinful broken nation, and you're too dumb to see it. He's not angry and frustrated. Instead, he sighs with sadness about a people that are burdened down with sin and iniquity, a people that have for generations only seen evil being done and have only done evil. God is sad for their sorry state of his chosen people, and God acknowledges that they've chosen it. Do you see that? They're completely estranged from the Lord. He's saying, you've chosen to forsake me. You've chosen to go this path. You've walked away. You've estranged. You've divorced yourself from me. You chose this. Why? He's not up there in anger. He's up there in sadness saying like, oh my gosh, you guys, what are you doing? Verse 5. It says, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sore and raw wounds and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You guys, God is making it completely clear that this is not what he wants for his people. He doesn't want this for his people. He's telling them, he's like, man, guys, come on. Understand what you're headed for. He doesn't want to see the suffering that's going to be coming upon them. He doesn't want to see them continue to not listen to him. And he tells them the state they're in. He's like, man, you're a body that's full of all sorts of wounds that you're not even allowing me to bind up and heal. He says they're like a desolate country, like a booth in a vineyard, a lodge in a cucumber field. Sounds a little funny to hear that, doesn't it? Here's the deal, you guys. 
back in the day, when there was a, basically a very rich man, let's say, and he had a very large vineyard, they would set up these temporary booths. Why? Because they would actually place guards in the middle of these fields to make sure that people weren't just coming in and reaping everything off of the things and stealing everything from them. And so, right, we know there were certain rules that they were allowed to come through and, and reap and glean and do different things, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about guards there because a whole crew comes in and steals your stuff, right? But these lodgings were not defensible, They were like little tents. They were little lean-tos to keep the people out of the sun so they didn't faint and and have all this hard time as they just stood out in the middle of an empty, of of an open field, right? That was what he was referring to with these lodgings and these things in the middle of fields. He's saying like, that's what you guys are like. You're in the middle of a wide open field. You are easily attacked. You're not lodging in something that's actually meant for safety or for your ease or for your comfort. These are things that are just there to kind of just set something up. It's like you did it yourself and you barely get anything out of it. Kind of like with Jonah and the little plant that grew up, right? And he was like, hey, that's nice. And then God killed it the next day. And he's like, why? Right? Think of it like it's, it's not meant for permanent structure. It's definitely not meant to give you enjoyment or rest. It's just a place. And I want us to think about this. Because what God's saying is like, man, you guys are living, thinking you've got things all squared away and figured out in your own might and in your own strength. And instead, what you are is like a little lean-to tent in the middle of a wide open field that can easily be crushed. Think about what God promises you guys. Proverbs 18.10, you're not going to see it up there. Just listen. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. God's telling them, There's so much more available to you. You just don't want to take it. You're not listening. Isaiah tells the people in advance of the exile in Babylon, and he's saying to them, like, man, this is not going to go well for you. And by the way, remember, like I already said, God's going to tell Isaiah, like, they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. Where did Ezekiel prophesy from? Babylon. Where did Jeremiah prophesy from? Jerusalem in the midst of the siege telling them, just go, it's too late. That's what Jeremiah's message basically was. Here's Isaiah telling them, hey guys, basically pull your head out. You have this opportunity, take it. And God already knows they're not going to, but he's just loving them and pouring out his grace upon them anyway. He's saying that, man, if God wasn't gracious, we'd be just like Sodom and Gomorrah. This was harsh language to the people of God. Do you understand that? We all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodomy, the word in our language, exists because of Sodom. It's a big deal even today. If you went around calling people Sodomites, probably if they have any amount of biblical knowledge, they would know, well, that's insulting (laughs) at a minimum, right? You guys, this is harsh language. And Isaiah was saying, it's a good thing for us that God is faithful to his covenant, even though we are not at all being faithful to him. That's what he's telling them. It's a good thing God loves us. It's a good thing God is faithful and gracious because he has every right, the way we're acting, to just wipe us out. And it's only by his grace that he's not going to because he's loving to us. Even when we act like we don't know him at all. Listen, he's going around telling these people, 
It's because all of this stuff's coming down, you guys, because we are evil. Because our nation as a whole is like a pus-filled, completely sick body that God would probably do better to just wipe out, take you out of your misery. And yet he loves you enough that he's not going to do that. Why did he take out Sodom and Gomorrah? Did you guys ever think about that? He did it because it was better for the earth as a whole that they were gone than to continue to infect the rest of the world. I'm thankful for God's grace. The fact, and I'm also thankful even for Sodom and Gomorrah, right, that we have Abraham being like, man, God, what if there's 50? What if there's 25? What if there's gets down to 10 and then God's finally like, I'm out. How many were there? Two. Lot, well, four if you count the kids, right? Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. That's how many were in the whole city of Sodom that were righteous. And God rescued those righteous folk out of that. But that was it. Those were the only people in the entire city. And so God's like, I've got to take care of this now. Why did God bring Noah's flood? Because the entire world was that jacked up. Why is God going to return and pull his bride back and let the rest of the world hear? In his grace, he's still going to spend seven years trying to get people to, to come to him. But why is he going to do these things? Because God's justice is, is in as much authority and power as his grace and mercy. Yeah. These are hard things to hear, but I need us to hear it because, guys, this is the book of Isaiah too. Yeah. And Isaiah is saying to his own people, you guys, you're messed up. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's calling the people of Judah Sodomites. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Guys, God is telling Judah to stop playing church. That's what he's telling them. They were living fake, hypocritical, plastic lives. You guys know that the main thrust of our church is to come in and be real before the Lord and before, before each other. Don't be plastic. Don't come in like Ken and Barbie, all squeaky. And, I got this figured out. Everything's that's exactly what they were doing. I'm going to trample all over your courts, God, and I'm just going to fake it like crazy. And I, here's my great uh, goat to, to do, and here's this. And I walk out, and, I, and nothing changes, and nothing's real. He's telling them, stop it. It's gross. It's disgusting. Isaiah 29, 13, you guys, describes this point in Jewish history. It says this, the Lord said, because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, 
yet their hearts are far from me, and their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote. It consists, their worship consists of man-made rules, man-made liturgy, man-made styles, and, and all these things learned by rote. And do you guys know what that means? It means that they're just going through the motions. The name of the message tonight is this, madly in love with God or going through the motions? Question mark. Which one? Jesus quoted this as he described where Israel was, specifically the religious leaders of that time as well. You guys, Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew Henry said this about the behavior of someone under God's judgment. And I, I need us to hear this because I think this is really telling. It says, when sinners are under the judgments of God, they will more easily be brought to fly to their devotions than to forsake their sins and reform their lives. What's Matthew Henry saying? When people are in their, when they're at the bottom of the barrel, they might come to church because that's what you do when you're at the bottom of the barrel. You might come to church. But they're not actually going to change. They're not going to forsake anything and reform. No, they're just going to come to church because that's what you do in the bottom of the barrel. And God's so faithful, sometimes it's not true with people. What Matthew Henry saw, Matthew Henry lived long ago, and I think it's still true, and I think it's true for these people. Here's Isaiah pummeling them with the word of God saying, in love, and saying, you guys need to figure it out. And what Matthew Henry saw and what God is saying to them here is, you guys keep going through the motions thinking that means something when in fact it doesn't because you don't really want to change. You are quite happy and content in your sin. And the reality is, you guys, there's so much for us to grab hold of here. God was telling the people through Isaiah, stop acting like all the rituals that you're doing are from your heart. Stop playing church. God's making it clear, like, it doesn't serve him for you to be trampling all over the place and just screwing around while you're in there when your heart isn't even desiring to see him change anything. Why bother? Don't come. Don't come. Don't show up. That's what God's saying. God makes it clear we don't serve him well by doing things just because that's what we do without a real heart to serve and love him. Ah, that can be a little convicting, can it? Come on, church. These people had a form of religion without all those pesky things like obedience and love and desire to serve. You know, those pesky, tiny little things. He asks them, who's forcing you to come into my temple? Who's forcing you to bother to come to church? You keep doing everything you've done. You keep doing on top of that, though, everything you think you have to do. <laughs> you feel like you're forced to do to try to be in relationship with me without in any way, shape, or form desiring relationship with me. Guys, if, if you're here tonight, if you're listening to this online, if you listen to this later, I would just encourage you, like, we want you to be in church because it is a place. It's like sitting under a spout of water when you're thirsty. You can close your mouth all day long and never get a drink of water. The hope is, is that you open your mouth a little bit and get some water. So it's better to be in church than not to be. But can I just encourage you, and I've said it before, church will never save a human soul ever. Never, ever. Jesus Christ saves. 
It's faith in Christ that saves. That's the thing that matters. And you can come to church. Listen, I think there are plenty of churches in our day and age. There are churches in this town that people are just going through the motions. And how do I know that? Because their theology is jacked and they've lost Jesus long ago because they're all about the social setting of what is happening. They've lost their way. I continue to pray that God would close those churches. I do. So that hopefully people can get some water instead of poison. Because God's word is water to our souls. What's happening in society and teaching about it doesn't help anybody. God's telling a man, stop. I'm tired of your garbage. He also goes one step further. He says, man, you can keep giving all your eloquent prayers, but I'm not listening. When it says that with your hands raised, you guys, we do this too, right, in in the modern day, but there was a season, right, in the 80s, maybe the Baptists, right, they do this, and they close their eyes, and they bow their heads, and they fold their hands, and that's how we pray, but that's not at all how the Jews prayed. The Jews prayed by looking up in the sky, eyes wide open, with hands raised, because they were praying to their God. That's how they prayed. So what he's saying is, you raise your hands, and you say all these words, I'm not listening, because they're just words that mean nothing. Even though, go, even though they go through all the many traditions and motions of religion, he's like, man, I'm not listening and I'm not going to continue to put up with your meaningless drivel. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Listen to this. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, They shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You guys, we see this over and over in Scripture, don't we? You guys, God's not afraid to tell us where we stand. I pray as a church, we are not afraid to lovingly look at someone and be like, What you just said about that brother, what you just talked about about your wife, what you just said in that was told to you in confidence and you just told me, that's crap, man. You need to stop doing that. That's wrong. I pray that we're a church that's not afraid to love each other enough to call each other out for our garbage, but we don't just stay there and be like, now I will never talk to you again. (laughs) No, because what about the day that you're the one that's getting caught on the carpet, which will come because we're all screwed up sinners, right? Me included, all of us. I love that God never leaves us in our rot. Aren't you glad for that? He tells them, man, what do you, you want to you stop this? Repent. Stop it. He tells them like, man, here's what you need to do. Repent. Cease doing the things that you are doing. Wash yourself. Now, here's the deal, you guys. Under the new covenant of Jesus that we live under, how do we do that? We put our faith in Christ under the blood of the lamb, we are washed clean in God's sight. 
We're forgiven. We walk in his grace and we walk in his mercy. Amen? That's the new covenant. How did they do it in the old covenant? Very similarly in a way. But you do it by taking an animal, a spotless animal, as much as it could be spotless, right? It was inspected. You, you gave of the, the best of what you had. You took it there and you laid your hand upon it and you slit its throat. And as that blood came out, you basically said to God, I'm putting all of my sin, all of my garbage in faith upon this animal and it is dying in my place because that's what I deserve. That's what they had to do. So when he says things like cease to do evil, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, what's he saying? Just like for us, we've got to accept the work that Jesus did on the cross and rising again through faith. It's the same faith that God was looking for from his people then. Faith that they had in their hearts that when they brought that sacrifice, they weren't just doing it because like, well, that's what we do. We show up to church and we sing about Jesus. We come here and we take an animal and it doesn't really have to be the best. I mean, it could be whatever and it's, it's okay. And what, that type of attitude, it's like, well, no, you're not gaining anything because you're not coming in faith. You're just doing it because. Guys, my prayer is, is that when we get to heaven, I, I need you to hear me on this, that every human being that comes into the doors of AGB, we see in heaven. But statistically, I believe there are many, many Protestants that think church saves them, that think that one little tiny thing of like, I accepted Jesus when I was two and lived like hell my entire life, that that means something. The reality is, what does the Bible tell us? Yes, if you call upon all that call upon the name of the Lord are saved, but you know what else it says? Abide in me and I will abide in you. Where's the balance in between the two? I have no idea. Do you know what I do know? If you're abiding, you're safe. (laughs) If you're abiding also, you're doing that. You're going out into the world and telling people about Jesus. Why? Because your life is not the same. Right? Do you get my point? Man, listen. Yeah, I'm not going there. We, I just will say this, you guys. Man, what was God looking for here? He's saying to his people, love me more than you love everything else. And don't just love me because you think you have to because I'm your God. Love me because you love me. Come to me in faith. Walk with me. Don't do it just because it's a ritual. You guys, can I just encourage us? When we walk in repentance, repentance is not, listen, there's a difference between being sorry for your sin and repenting. You know that, right? There are times, I'm just being real, that I'm, I'm sorry for my sin in the midst of sinning. What about you guys? There have been times that my wife has tapped my leg and in the middle of me saying things that I probably shouldn't be saying that I have to repent for later, I'm already feeling sorry for it, but I'm like, eh, too, too late, I'm already in it. You can be sorry all day long and never repent. That is not good. Repentance is saying, Lord, not only am I sorry, I don't even want to do that again. Change my ways. Turn me a different direction. Does that mean suddenly you walk in perfection? No. I wish it did. (laughs) That'd be awesome. I think I could be cleaned up in about 17 more years. (laughs) No. (laughs) The rest of my life is what it's going to take. But the reality is, you guys, God's grace is sufficient, right? We know that. I'm not trying to be up here saying that there's some weird thing. What I'm trying to get us through and what I see in Scripture here that he's saying to his people is, follow and love me. You're never going to do it perfectly, but do it with a real, genuine heart and desire to love me. 
And I promise that I love you more than you'll ever love me. And I will give you more than you could ever give me. But all I want is you. And church, I think we need to hear that. Because there, the American church is large. God's church in America is much tinier. I'm going to say it one more time. American church, pretty big. God's church in America is much tinier. I don't want that to be true of us. And I'm not sitting in judgment over them other than to say, man, if they're teaching crap that doesn't line up with the God's word, then it's just that. It's crap, and they need to get out of there, and they need to close the doors because they're not doing anything. Go to the bar and hear the same advice. Go to wherever you go, some social club. Why are you bothering to waste your Sunday? Go to where God's word's being taught. In all its flavors. Here's the truth, you guys. When we walk in repentance and we're washed clean, we're going to do the rest of this. Verse 17. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, the orphans, right? Plead the widow's cause. Listen, when we are in a place of walking in repentance, when we know what we've been washed clean from daily, can I just encourage you? I believe this is true. We will want to see those that are oppressed, that are oppressed, freed, from the same oppression that we were freed from by Christ. Amen? We're going to want to see that. I want to see that. When I talk to brothers, well, I shouldn't use the word brother. When I talk to people out in Dover, my friend who's a, who is a voodoo priest, he's oppressed. His way of life is to curse everyone else so that his life's better. He's oppressed. It breaks my heart for him. I don't stand there in judgment and be like, oh, you loser. No, I'm like, dude, you really believe cursing everyone else and making your life better is a way to live? It's a pretty crappy way to live, isn't it? And he's like, well, it works for me. What if someone stronger than you in the voodoo religion comes along and curses you harder? Then what? I mean, where does this end? I would rather speak blessing. I would rather bring you to freedom. I would rather see that happen in your life. And it encourages me to want to go talk to him again, more and more and more, even though I think he's a little bit of a wackadoodle in that way. You know, we're going to care about those that are fatherless. We're going to care about orphans. We're going to care about widows. We're going to care about people that in the world would consider, be considered less than. We just are. I've seen it in my own heart. I'm sure you guys have too. The more you come and walk with the Lord, the more you're walking in the genuineness of a relationship with God, the more I start to see everyone else around me very, very differently than I would otherwise. It's just a fact. Verse 18 gives us this amazing, beautiful picture of this, of the patience and condescension of God. Condescending sounds like such a bad word, but in the case of God, everything is condescension. Do you guys get that? He is high above. (laughs) So him bothering with us is condescension in the most pure form of the word. Does that make sense? And so he's patient and he's condescending down to us. He has every right to demand absolute obedience or death doesn't he? He could have just said to Adam and Eve, you're done. I quit. But he didn't. He doesn't do that, you guys. He goes even further than even saying, just obey me. He says this, come now. Let's reason together. Let's talk. That's awesome. 
You guys, his justice is perfect and righteous. He has every right to just say, this is what you do, and if you don't, you're in hell. He has every right to do that. Do you understand that? That's not who he is, though. He is that in the sense that he's perfectly just to do that, but he chooses not to because he's also grace and mercy and love. And so he invites us all, man. He's like, come reason together. In other words, he's like a good dad, and he's saying, man, I'm asking you. Here's what I'm asking you. Let me love you and protect you. Understand that listening to me, it's not a burden. It's because I love you, and I want to protect you. It's a joy and a rest because it's the best way to live your life. That's what God's telling his people. That's what God's telling us, you guys. Any parent in here knows you tell your kids stuff because you want to make their life living hell and they have no fun their entire lives. <laughs> Gage is back there shaking his head. Mm-hmm. No, that's not true at all, is it? We tell them things like, hey, man, don't do this. Don't do that. And now all the parents everywhere know that their kids are thinking, oh, yeah, you think I'm just making your life a drag. But you're like, no, don't have sex before you're married for a lot of reasons. Number one, because God says no. But really, honestly, because you're just ruining things for when you are married. Things are harder this way. You have more experience than you should have for your husband or your wife. You have more of all this. There's this thing that we do. Don't do drugs. But it's a lot of fun to do what everybody else is doing. And it could kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it could really screw you up. And I know too many of my own relatives and friends that are royally jacked up. And there's a few gravestones of friends. There's a lot of things that parents say that we do because we love our kids. How much more does God speak the absolute perfect thing that we need to hear? That even, see, even some Christians look at the Bible, just a bunch of rules. Not at all. Not at all. Following God brings freedom. Amen. Do not steal. Guess what happens when you don't steal? You don't have to worry about anything because you didn't steal anything. <laughs> Good for you. Honestly, guys, I mean, really, we act like things are so much. And even in the church, sometimes people act that way. And man, he's a good father and he loves us. And I think he's saying, man, reason with me on this. Think about this reasonably. I am perfect and I love you dearly. And everything I tell you, if you listen to me, you will live the best. I'm not talking about Joel Osteen, your best life now, but you will have your best life because it's the life God has for you to live. Are you going to do it perfectly? No. Has any child in here ever, has any parent in here ever been like, my child is literally Jesus number two? No, because we're all jacked up. God does not expect perfection. If he did, Jesus wouldn't have bothered to come. He just wants us to love him. He just wants us to listen. He just wants us to follow him and love him well and be madly in love with him. I promise you guys, man, that life is the best life. And I'm still learning to walk it. But I can tell you this, from where I started at 16 to 48, oh my goodness. If I could go back to 16-year-old me and be like, listen now, don't do these things that I know you're going to do in your 20s, you idiot. Don't. Oh man, I would totally do it. Does that make sense? We all would say that, wouldn't we? 
He's saying, man, what I'm showing you, what I'm saying to you is more than reasonable. You're a sinner. Follow me. Be washed clean in me. Follow me in obedience and see the blessing that comes from it. That's what he says in here. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. This isn't health and wealth. This is not God up there with a score sheet of like, well, Joe, man, he is going to get an entire cow. But Steve, he is pretty disobedient this month. You're going to get some steak tips and that's it. No, that's not what God's saying. He's like, look, I love you. I want to bless you in abundance. However that looks, not just financial, not just whatever, just in your life. And it's not 100% based on our obedience, but it is based on a heart that says, man, God, that's what I want from my life. I want to serve you well. God blesses that life. Not only does he bless it in all sorts of ways, but can I just encourage you guys? How do we do that? Missional rest. We're going to talk a lot about this on Sunday. We don't do it in our own strength. Where's the rest come from? The Holy Spirit. We do it in the power that God gives us to do it in. You can fight till you're blue in the face, I'm not going to look at porn. I will not look at porn again. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop doing that. Man, that one check was really hot. Oh, man. Mm, mm. And then we end up falling. Idiot. You're going to do dumb things. Women, I'm not going to talk poorly about that other person, but the next time I'm not, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm around my friends. Let's pray for her. Do you know what's going on in her life? Let me tell you. Right? You guys, when we're trying to walk in our own strength, we're going to fail. When we're trying to walk in the Spirit, we're going to fail to do that too <laughs> at times. God's grace is sufficient. It's the heart that he's looking for. He's saying, man, like, I want you to love me. I want you to follow me. That's what he's telling his people. But he also says this, but if you refuse, remember, he's speaking to them before all of this, you're going to be devoured in your disobedience. I need you to hear this. God's not threatening them. God's speaking about what's coming. He's telling them, things aren't going to go well. What happened during Babylon's siege? It was horrible. People killing each other and eating each other. All sorts of disgusting things were happening in there. When they escaped, people were just cut down on the way out the door. I mean, it was just horrific what happened. And here's God saying, like, return to me. I'm reasoning with you. I'm telling you, I love you. I want you to follow me. And I need you to hear this. He did this as a sovereign God who had already told Isaiah, they're not going to listen. But he still tells them anyway. What do we read in the book of Revelation? There will be many that come. Thank God. But there's also going to be those people. And when we read in Revelation, there's going to come a point, you guys, in that seven-year period where there's an actual angel flying through heaven talking about how Jesus is king. And even then, people will harden their hearts even more. It's crazy. He's speaking the truth, man. So, concluding. If I were to lay a line out tonight from one end of the stage, clear out to the other. And on this end, it's madly in love with God. Head over heels for the Lord. Doing everything you can in your entire life to exist in the presence and in the love and in the mercy and grace of God. And that's where you're at all the time. And over here, 
clear on the other end. You're just obeying and following God and going through the motions and just doing your thing. When I say you're obeying God, you're not really obeying him. You're doing whatever you want, but you're just following the motions. You're acting on the outside like you're doing something good. Here's my question. Where would you fall? Where would you fall? Where on the stage would you be standing? And I got to say something. As I've asked that question to myself, I really thought through it. I'm like, man, in, in different seasons of my life, I've been on all these spots, right? Like it, sometimes, man, I'm like head over heels. I remember back in times in my life, man, when I first joined the Air Force and I got plugged into a church, man, I was like just blowing up, man. God was just, phew. we would go out and do street evangelism. It was nuts. I loved it. Then I met a girl. And at times, I was clear over there, doing whatever the heck I pleased, being a total moron, still showing up to this great church, having everyone be like, man, what's changed? I know exactly what changed, but I wasn't going to tell them that. I want to encourage us, man, tonight, take what we've read seriously. This, and I say this all the time, and you guys know this, man, like, I don't ever read any part of the Bible and think, man, stupid idiot Israelites for doing what they were doing. No, I look at it and I'm like, man, God, how do I fit into this? How am I like this? In what ways do you want to talk to me through this? And I want to encourage us, man, God corrects his children because he loves us. And his correction is good for us. To be honest, I just love following him and seeking to obeying him because I think it's a sweeter way of life and I find that there's a lot less correction over there because <laughs> he doesn't need to. I have three children. One required a ton of correction, constant correction. One, if I looked slightly displeased, they got it. Between the two of them, our oldest would be like, why do I always get in trouble? Well, because you don't listen, <laughs> right? Why doesn't she ever get in trouble? She does get in trouble, and she picks up on this, and I don't need to go any further. You bang your head off a wall until I have to stop you from banging your head off the wall, right? Physically. <laughs> Man, he's constantly... God is constantly inviting each of us, man, come and reason with me. Bring your life to me. Talk to me about every area of it. I want to interact with you. I want to lovingly show you. When do we do that the most? When we're madly in love. When we're like, oh God, I know every word that you speak to me. Everything that you give to me is for my good and I want to know more. Oh God, I want my life to reflect you more. Oh God, I want this, I want that. When do we... Avoid that the most when we're clear over here, just going through the motions. Tonight, I want to just take five minutes, but I also want to encourage you to take the rest of this week. Wherever you are on the line, seek God. Reason with him. Repent of whatever he shows you. And be washed clean. Christian, if you're here tonight and you know Jesus, 
You're already clean in his sight. Number one, know that you are justified. It doesn't negate repentance. Repentance is for us. We say, oh Lord, I agree with you. I am screwed up in this area. Please change me. But the other thing I would say is this. Don't be afraid of what God might show you, what the Holy Spirit might reveal to you. And it might be shocking and surprising to you because you might not even know that you've begun to do some things out of habit and because you're just doing it. Let him show you that stuff and give it to him and come into a place with him even more further down that side of the line. And man, have a heart that grows with God. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you, Father, for this time. And Lord, as we begin through this book, Lord, I love that we already have this massive challenge that you've given to your people and Lord, that you're giving to us. And I do pray, Lord, as we just take a few moments to just seek your face, to ask you these questions. I pray, God, that as we do that, Father, that you would, Holy Spirit, reveal it to us. And Lord, not just now in these five minutes, God, I pray that throughout the rest of this week, even, Lord God, that we would just carve out our drive into work, or we would carve out, Lord, that, that quiet time before you, Lord, to just sit and listen to you, Holy Spirit, and not be afraid of the answers that you might bring. Lord, we desire, Lord, I desire, Lord, to be madly, madly, head over heels, ridiculously in love with you, God. And Lord, I know, oh man, there's so many areas and so many times, Lord God, that I find myself not as in love as I want to be. And Lord, I thank you that it's not a competition. And I also thank you, Lord, that you meet us where we are and that you are more madly in love than we could ever be. But God, open our eyes to see clearly the things that you have for us to see. Lord, open our eyes, Lord, to the things and areas of our own walk with you, Lord, that maybe we've just gotten into habits. Lord, maybe it's our time in the word has just become stale and we're wondering why and maybe it's just because we're just checking blocks instead of actually coming and hearing from the God of the universe who created us through his word. God, maybe churches become stale for some people. Lord, I pray, Father, that they would understand that we are here not just to come to church. Lord, we're here because we're a body. And we miss the parts when they're not here of your body that you have called here. God, I pray, Father, that for us as a church, Lord, that we would be a people that are healthy, walking with you, madly in love with you, Lord God, and that we wouldn't be these pus-filled, rotten bodies that you've described about Judah, God. I pray, Father, and if we are, Lord, man, clean us up. Pour out the antiseptic of your Holy Spirit into our lives even more. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. I thank you, God, that you are always awake. There's never a time when you're not ready to hear from us. Lord, there's never really a time, Lord, that you don't want to hear from us, Lord, as, as we come to you in humility and recognition of who you are and how messed up we are. 
Thank you as well, God, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Lord, I pray for each person here that you, even throughout the rest of this week, as they just take the time with you, opening their ears and listening. Thank you, Lord, that as you show us things, Lord, that we have the opportunity to lay them at your feet, Lord, and God, I pray our passion grows more and more for you, Lord, that our love and our desire to know you grows more and more and more, Lord. And I know in my own life, Lord, the more I see your grace, the more I see your mercy, the more I see just how much you love me, Lord, it just makes me fall that much more in love with you. God, I can't wait for the day that we get to be face-to-face for eternity. Lord, I pray while we're here on this earth, God, that we would be people desiring to know you, desiring to melt into you, God. I don't know another way to say it, Lord. I just want to dissolve into you. Use our lives for your glory. Have your way in us. But Lord, start with each of us to teach us what it looks like to really love you well, Lord, and to walk with you in obedience, not because it's obligatory, but because genuinely, Lord, what else would we do? You are so good. Your ways are perfect. You are your life that you have for us is the best life that we could ever live. Help us, God. Be with us, I pray. Have your way in us as we go home. Give us safety. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.